This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. How we doing, Trip? Ready when you are. Prepare for war. Course laid in, sir. Request permission to get underway. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated enterprise show. I'm your host, Norman Lau, and Happy New Year, everyone in Trek FM listening land. It's time to ring in the new year with new opportunities and new possibilities, and of course, new resolutions. My New Year's resolution is pretty simple, and for the first time in my life, I think I can finally stick with it. I want to convert as many new fans to watching Enterprise as I possibly can. Now, some of you may or may not know that we like calling Enterprise fans boomers. I'll give Will credit for that because he came up with it. But you'll have to listen to the previous podcast on Travis Mayweather's as to why. So our show topic for this episode is simply a guide for baby boomers. That's a good name. I thought it was pretty that's clever. Good, that's very clever. But I, I, you're, you're kind of like half credit for that, Will, because you, you're the boomers nickname. So we'll, we'll split credit on that's that in the, uh, <laughs> in the notes. So the focus for the show is to help new fans and, and fans that are coming back to the show begin their journey and their overall viewing experience with Enterprise, starting with a specific and special selection of episodes from season one that best represent what we feel are the, the exploratory and pioneering spirits of Star Trek and the potential that Enterprise always has to offer newcomers or even returning fans of the show. Because there, there has been a long hiatus between when the show ended and how fans can get their content online because there are so many different ways. I'll get, that, get to that in a second. So to help me kick off are two very distinguished guests to help me discuss these fantastic episodes. So back in the decon chamber for his first episode in 2015 is Will Nguyen, our content coordinator for Trek FM. Will, how you doing, man? Good to be here, Norm. I got the gel ready to go. I'm in my blue underwear and skivvies, just... Ready to decontaminate. Let's go. All right. Now, remember, we like warm gel, not cold That's gel. True. We got to make that. We got to put that in the notes. Warm gel, not cold gel. Uh, All right. And uh, top and bottoms on the skivvies, please. <laughs> Will do. And a uh, very special welcome back to a close friend of the network and enterprise expert and enthusiast and the writer and director and executive producer of Star Trek Horizon, Tommy Kraft. Tommy, welcome back. How are you? I am lovely. Thank you for having me. Though I will say uh, I am taking the Dr. Phlox approach to the decon chamber. I'm not doing the blue skivvies. Um, It's just uh, when I listened to your first podcast and you guys talked about being in blue underwear, it really threw me for a second until I realized you were talking about the decon chamber. (laughs) Well, you know, it's it, we're trying to stay standard Starfleet issue here. I mean, in real life and in the decon chamber. Right, so, right, of course. You know, 
Yeah, we're so a family friendly. We do show. our best here. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. We have we have voices. Uh, wait, what? Faces for radio? Is that it? Is that how they say it? Or skivvies for radio? Anyway, I digress. Either way, we have them. Okay, so getting back on point here, um, what I wanted to discuss uh, with all the fans out there are these special episodes for Enterprise. Now, when I brought this subject up to Tommy and to Will, uh, they agreed that we were going to try and take it from a from a standpoint of talking about how these episodes fit into the general scheme of Enterprise, the quality of season one, and how a new viewer would be able to benefit from watching these shows. Because, let's face it, there has been a little bit of fan downness in bashing on Enterprise. Um, and the one thing that we want to avoid is uh, creating uh, any type of misconception of, of why, you should, why you should start watching the show. Because we all agree, since we're all here in Warp 5, we all agree that we think it's a fantastic show and we want to share our enthusiasm with you. But there is a little bit of a catalyst of why I think new fans have been coming back to watching Star Trek or coming back to trying to find content online and opinions notwithstanding. I think that the J.J. Abrams movies have had a positive benefit on at least igniting the interest of watching Star Trek again with younger fans um, and trying to find the shows that may or may not suit their interests. And there are obviously all the different series that are fantastic. They're finding them on Netflix and they're finding them on Hulu and YouTube. CBS Online obviously has the entire category and catalog of Star Trek on their website. So it's become increasingly easier and even more convenient over the last few years to find Star Trek. And on the Babel Conference, our dedicated Trek FM listener page on Facebook, I am really happy to hear all of the new fans that are chiming in and saying, hey, I can't believe that this show was really that good. I don't remember it being that good. Or I can't believe that I had such a negative experience when I first watched the show. So it's very encouraging to hear that um, a lot of fans, new and returning fans, are being really vocal and positive about the show. So Will, Tommy, and I have each chosen two different episodes from season one that we believe best represent the spirit of the show and how Enterprise really does fit in well with the overall canon and the overall series in general of Star Trek. So let's dive in to the point of the matter. And Tommy, let's get to your two episodes. Now you chose episode seven, the Andorian incident and episode 23 fallen hero. Tell us a little bit, a little bit about why you chose those two specifically for our listeners sake. Well, it's there. They are good introductions to uh, any Star Trek and they're good introductions to enterprise and also, very importantly, they're good introductions to the Vulcans, and they show you two very different sides of what the Vulcans can be. And also, the um, the kind of story in both of the episodes is very different, and so it gives you a good variety of the kind of show that Enterprise is, where the Andorian incident is... It's it's much more of a ground-based story, and then you have Final Flight, and uh, it's much more of a, a space-based story. Is that the name of the episode? Did I screw that up? It's Fallen well, we, Hero. It's right? a fallen, fallen Hero. Hero. I was thinking of Fight or Flight. My bad. Uh, yeah. That's okay. Uh, but uh, Fallen Hero, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so anyway, it's it's just a very varied take on the same subject in the same show, and I think that'll be good for new viewers. Well, I think one of the things that viewers had an initial problem with, and Will, Will maybe you can chime in on this, um, because you're watching Enterprise pretty, pretty cleanly as a new viewer. You know, you don't really have a lot of baggage coming into the series. Um, or a lot of the um, kind of like the issues that uh, fans did when they were first watching Enterprise and its original series broadcast. But the Vulcans, I remember uh, watching it when I was watching it originally, they were taking an completely different track. They weren't the Vulcans that you remember from Spock or Tuvok or Vulcans that you've seen 23rd century and moving forward. These are 22nd century Vulcans. And I think that they were a little different from what people believe Vulcan should be. Why do you think the writers maybe went with this angle? I think it really speaks to the evolution of the Federation. I think when you see them in TOS, when you see them in later iterations, they've almost become the conscience or they've become, uh, I guess, a a higher voice for Starfleet, for, for the Federation. But when you see them in Enterprise, they're very much... They're still into real, you know, real politique. They're still about their own, you know, Vulcan polity, right? So the Vulcan High Command still has their own foreign relations, right? They have their own interstellar relations. Whereas by the time of Spock, in a lot of ways, I feel that they've almost outsourced it to the humans, right? So the Federation, Starfleet, they've outsourced kind of that that those hard decision making to the humans. And they can kind of take a step back and focus more on, you know, diplomacy and and scientific endeavors. But Initially, in, in Enterprise, they're very much, you know, they're suspicious of the Andorians. They hate the Tellarites. They are, they know there are threats out there. There's no Federation. It's just them, and they still have a military, right? So they still have an intelligence service that you see in the Andorian incident. So you see them just be much more involved, and because they're much more involved, they've got to get their hands dirty, right? they got to get their, uh, they need to operate in a way that's less hands-off, and I think that was what was very jarring, for a lot of new viewers. And also just from a uh, just from a storytelling standpoint, it makes things interesting when you're doing a prequel to really shake things up a bit because if we went back to this 100 years before Kirk, give or take, and everything was more or less the same, we'd be asking the question, what's the point? Why are we doing this? And so to give the Vulcans this different kind of personality in this different take really sets up a lot of stories and a lot of interest in showing you how do we get to where we are in the Kirk and Picard eras and how does Vulcans undergo uh, this massive character shift over that time and what is it that sparks that? So in going back to the Endorian incident, the Enterprise, they visit a monastery, a Vulcan monastery. Uh, We know that it was attacked by Endorians and there is an issue with the Vulcans that Archer and company need to suss out. And I think when I first saw this, I think this was the first time where we really saw a more clandestine approach to how the Vulcans um, dealt with not only Starfleet, but pretty much, I think, with their secret organizational aspects in general. So why do you think that the writers may have felt that this was a beneficial way to start this new type of Vulcan characterization? 
Well, you know, it's interesting when you put it that way as clandestine. Um, just for some reason, that made me think of it. It's they were they acted very Romulan in uh, in this episode and in general with the Andorians. But um, I I think going to the uh, what we suggested earlier about the different sides of the Vulcans is this shows you the more militarized side of them, and it shows you the side of them where they. Uh, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk the talk, and so they talk this big game of peace and logic and and all that. And here they are hiding under this monastery, this this huge listening outpost. And one thing we can relate this to is all of the controversy in current times with like the NSA spying in the United States and and all of these big issues that we're dealing with now in terms of. Uh, data security and, and privacy and really when you think about it the Vulcans are being that big brother government spying on everything the Andorians are doing and no less they're doing it under uh, essentially a religious cover and uh, it's it's not a very good thing and it it uh, it sets up a lot of conflict there and I think for Archer it helps even reinforce a lot of his own negative ideas about the Vulcans. What do you think about that, Will? I think that was a really great point, Tommy, about them being Romulan, because it totally is Romulan, right? So right. using the guise of a monastery, that's pretty underhanded. And I I don't know when the origin of that whole phrase, Vulcans never lie, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure in this episode, they just outright lied. They just outright yeah. deceived. So this was just, I, I think that was also probably what a lot of fans were like, what? They just totally lied. How is this a thing? I thought they were supposed to never lie, right? So, you know, I'm actually not sure when that maxim became kind of binding, but this is, you know, it's such a departure because in a lot of ways, if the Vulcans weren't the allies of, of you know, humanity and of Earth, they would clearly be, you know, almost the villain, right? They're, they're right. kind of being exposed. You know, the Andorians are right, but their approach was a little bit too hot-headed, but in reality... They were right, right? So I think in a lot of ways, for me, I like that nuance, but for other fans, I could totally understand how they were just like, whoa, how are these the good guys again? Well, again, going back to how Enterprise is supposed to bridge forward into the original series, the Maxim, as you say, Will, uh, the Vulcans are incapable of lying, is replete across the original series, especially um, in the episode, I think it's the Enterprise incident where Spock is stealing the the Romulan cloaking device, and he is outright lying to the Romulan commander, but in the same time he's doing it because he's under orders by Starfleet to do so. So I think there is a lot of these fine line points where Vulcans believe that if they are doing something because they're ordered to or the logic dictates it in a certain way, then it supersedes that very gray area of whether or not this lie is um, basically uh, hiding the truth from somebody or or you know, deceiving somebody in a certain way, because I think the Vulcans have this ability to separate what needs to be done versus the the way that they're doing it. And I think we really see a lot of that, especially in the Andorian incident, because they just, like you said, they say that this, this listening station doesn't exist here. It's not here. And it clearly was. <laughs> and I think when fans saw that, they were like, um... Oh, so, oh, what? <laughs> well, you know, it's 
it's it's interesting. I think it, I've always, first of all, the Vulcans never lie. I've always looked at that as if we kind of said something like, "Humans never kill," which is obviously not a true statement. But I would say that the general population in the civilized society tries not to kill other people. And so, if you were to say, "Well, humans don't kill." That would be a somewhat sort of kind of accurate statement of what we try to achieve, strive for. Um, but in reality, it, it does happen. And in terms of um, these actions being just really like out there for fans of the show and fans of Vulcans, I think once again, relating it to human society, you see in Star Trek, especially in the time of Kirk and Picard, these very noble humans and they do all these or try to do all these good things of course there's bad apples every now and then but they on the whole are very good people and if you go back just a couple hundred years you get us and you get all these terrible things like killings in Paris that have happened and so on and and those are not things that you would ever find in the Picard era and but it's still the same race of people and so i think when people get upset about um the way the vulcans were portrayed especially initially in enterprise it was a lack of faith in the writers and what they were trying to do for some reason because everything is done for a purpose or at least as you strive for that when you're writing a show and i think the writers always intended to bring it full circle with the vulcans and and really develops them into the characters that we know and a lot of fans when they saw the way they were portrayed in the Andorian incident and in other episodes I think it just turned them off because they figured the writers were disrespecting Star Trek and disrespecting Vulcans without really thinking about the fact well that everybody has to start somewhere in terms of a character or a race well that's true and I think again going back to you know, trying to educate new viewers into watching Enterprise was the fact that they shifted away from a more classical arrangement for an opening theme song. That started kind of like the snowball effect of fans not understanding where the vision of this show was going. It was right off the bat, the very opening sequence. We're like, well, this isn't Star Trek. It doesn't have this really great bombastic opening classical score and sequence. It didn't even have Star Trek in the name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Didn't have Star Trek in the name. So I think fans were like, well, there's strike one. And then, okay, well, we'll, we'll go on and watch a couple episodes. And all of a sudden they see Vulcans that they're not used to seeing. And they're like, well, there's strike two. But for you new viewers or, or viewers that are coming back, these are, remember the Vulcan. It's funny we're talking about this with Vulcans. The, the Vulcan maxim of infinite diversity and infinite combinations. I think the writers were really trying to work hard to, to bring about a multi-layered, very deep, understanding of a culture that we really don't know too much about from the original series and all the different series. We know Vulcans are they're able to suppress their emotions. We understand that they're mating ritual with the pond far, all those things. We understand that, but we'd never really saw, uh, we, we were never able to peel back the layers of their culture. And I think that was really brave on the writers to try and even do so with, with the entirety of the canon weighing on them so um so that that was one aspect of of the vulcans that was a little uh interesting to see and and really neat to see the writers try and and evolve and and explore but on the opposite side um we have episode 23 fallen hero where i think the vulcans were portrayed in a little bit more positive way uh, and especially through to 
So, um, Tommy, why did you choose Fallen Hero as your second episode? Well, because I think it's not only a good episode with a good story, but it also shows you the other side of the Vulcans. It shows you that, yeah, some Vulcans suck, and but there are others that are very honorable and are and can actually even be very friendly. Um, whereas you see an Andorian incident, well, they're not even friendly. They're just, you know, they're kind of there. And... Um, I think it's a very good contrast, and once again, we can liken it to ourselves, we can liken it to other stories, other characters, and that a lot of times you will have some bad apples, you'll have some people that um, do not give a good name to the rest, and uh, the reason I picked this episode is because it shows you a really good contrast. You have the bad Vulcans and the Andorian incident, and... This episode, you have more honorable Vulcans, and I think there are a lot of analogies that can be drawn between that and our own society or religions or what have you on our own planet. So, Will, when you researched the the show, what did you think about the ambassador? And I mean, she was keeping a couple of secrets close to the vest, but and in doing so, I think she was she was doing it obviously from her diplomatic. Um, her diplomatic responsibilities, but it was interesting to see it filtered through to Paul because to Paul obviously had her own way of relating to this ambassador. She she put her up on a pedestal as Vulcans can, and and she kind of just I think lost her lost her uh, hero worship a little bit, if you will. So it's interesting to see Vulcans kind of do that. So how did you feel about that when you saw that in the show? You know, I thought it was it was very. Uh... It was very clever of the writers to kind of subvert those expectations that they had set up. I think it was very clever to really introduce an ambassador that was in a lot of ways, you know, reminded you why you liked Vulcans in the first place. She reminded me of the Vulcans that you would first meet in first contact, the one that met Zephram Cochran in the first place, where she was actually curious about human customs. She wanted to make a joke. She wanted to thank uh, Hoshi for letting her use uh, her quarters. She was curious about uh, human cuisine, and you can see those types of that type of interaction. You can just imagine the type of interaction rather uh, when Zephyr Cochran met the Vulcans in First Contact, and when they were still really developing a relationship with each other. Uh, so I think it was really uh, it was really clever and adept uh, of the writers to be able to to actually show a Vulcan that isn't just a complete jerk, isn't just a complete dick, right? So. But at the same time, it also begs, it begs a question for me in terms of was there almost a political decision to, to send almost all of the, the Vulcan ambassadors or the, or the, Vulcan represent, uh, the, the Vulcan representatives that were on Earth, that were overseeing the Warp 5 project, was it part of a larger policy for them just to really rein in the humans? Was that, and that other Vulcans were perfectly... They, they they were perfectly fine. They had the, the range of emotions and the range of personalities, but specifically the ones that were sent to Earth to oversee the, the Warp 5 project, were they the ones that were, you know, the hard-ass ones? They were the ones that really to rein in the humans? I think, you know, it kind of begs that question. I think it's kind of neat to think about because, as you can see, this episode has a really reasonable, fun, you know, respectable Vulcan that you want to see more of. But at the same time, I think it started to actually thaw out Archer's opinion of 
kind of the Vulcans that were kind of like, you know, they're always overshadowing him. They're always second guessing him. They're always kind of like on him in a critical way. And I think that in understanding the ambassador, he started to understand that, you know what, my prejudices coming out here into space aren't as founded as I once thought they were because she's actually working with me. She's working with the situation, I mean, up to a point. Um, and I think it, it starts to inform him that not everything is always as it seems with Vulcans. And sometimes the Vulcans that he met, like the ones in the Andorian incident, they were, <laughs> they were not the greatest advocates of the Vulcan culture, especially the ones that say that, you know, like, we're protecting a, we're protecting this religious, you know, uh, this, um, area from from the Andorians and then you have this this Vulcan ambassador who's absolutely she's she's on board with making sure that she's doing the right thing so um he, he's not left with a lot of easy choices when it comes to who to trust but I think that's interesting that it leads him to trusting to Paul probably a little bit more what do you think about that Tommy I think that's absolutely true and I think it's it's interesting this development that Archer had over this first season because also um in I think, yeah, it's Dear Doctor, which we'll talk about later. Uh, there's a line where Archer says to, to Paul something along the lines of, I'm beginning to understand how your people felt when we wanted warp drive. And it's kind of this idea, I think, of Archer growing up. It's almost like he's, uh, you know, the once child talking to his parent and saying, okay, well, I understand why you didn't let me do this when I was a kid. And all of these experiences, it's help Archer grow that opinion from our first major outing with the Vulcans in Andorian experience to the end of the season through things like Dear Doctor. Um, it's And T'Pol is a big part of that too because she starts out pretty stiff, but these, uh, these experiences help her as well. They help her grow out of her her shell and to understand both sides of, of the issues and realize that one type of person does not uh, always represent your whole society. And this is something that Archer said exactly too in the episode, the communicator when they, uh, I think it was the communicator when they sentenced him and read the death for being spies apparently. And Archer said to read, well, I'm sure they're not all that way. And it's kind of funny that Archer had this, inherent opinion about people that one group or one person does not affect the whole yet he finds himself making these kind of judgments about Vulcans kind of probably subconsciously and so I think this episode helps a lot for him to see that oh yeah that there are other types of Vulcans like there is with anything any species there's a spectrum and this ambassador is clearly uh on the more I would say at this point in time, liberal end of that spectrum. Well, yeah, I mean, her approach to everything, like um, she completely contradicts what what T'Pol had in store right. for her from a diplomatic perspective. Like the the, the quarters were were sparsely um, decorated as T'Pol thought they should have been. That the, the uh, ambassador was a little bit different there. She was more full of life. She was more full of zeal, uh, zeal and, and, and flavor. Uh, she wanted to embrace as, as many different types of different cultures and different cultural uh, details as she possibly could. And, and that's, I think that's something that, again, 
as fans of all different types of Star Trek, it's something that we weren't really used to seeing, especially in an ambassador, because our probably our biggest reference for uh, a Vulcan of that type of status as an ambassador was Sarek. And Sarek was not this right. ambassador. Sarek was, Sarek was what we thought was a typical um, template for, for a Vulcan of his stature. Same with Saval was the same way. So uh, just, to, uh, just to wrap up our, our mini discussion here about the Vulcans, I think it's fair to say that, yes, um, for new viewers, it may be a little jarring at first to try and wrap your brain around why the Vulcans were, were written this way and behaved this way, but I think that, I think that we can agree on it was a good, solid attempt at trying to inform a culture that we weren't used to seeing and to try and explore something that hasn't been explored. And at the very nature of it, that's what understanding Star Trek is about. It's, it's about trying to explore that which is both a little unnerving, but at the same time educational and informative. Even though it may stir up a couple of emotions, negative or otherwise, at least we give the everyone the opportunity to make that choice and to take a look at it and be informed about, you know, these different decisions that they've made for the show. So, um, Tommy, Will, what do you, do you have any more, you know, I think just kind of a, a, a recap of what I said earlier that, I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that enterprise is a prequel. And when you go back in time, oftentimes things are a lot different and it's, I think that's the fun of a prequel is to see how we got to, the place that we know and love in whatever other show. And I think Enterprise did that very well with the Vulcans and in general. And these two episodes are a very good showcase of, of what they were trying to do with that kind of storytelling. Yeah, I mean, I can only just echo those sentiments too. I think uh, just in the interest of time, I think, you know, everyone just summed it up uh, more than I ever could in terms of just summarizing, you know, that's the that's the power of the prequel and that's also uh you know it's it's that catch 22 where you you have that that canon weighing over you but at the same time you have the ability to also make something new while at the same time respecting what came before and it's it's a tricky balance and i think that eventually uh the fans understood what was happening and i think the writers really kind of got in that groove and you know arguably season one is my favorite next to season four so i think it's i think it's very indicative of of expectations setting um, setting up kind of the perspective of what the show was. I think going back and watching the show now for the first time, I'm just really surprised at how strong season one is and you know how expectations can definitely change your perception of a show over time. And I just want to say I think you're you're right that season one is very strong. It oftentimes gets a bum rap as being the weakest season of the show. And I wouldn't say that at all. I think it's just different from the seasons that followed it. They did something different in each season, and it's it's a very good season with a lot of varied stories. So continuing on, um for Will, uh your two picks um go a little bit differently than than where than where Tommy was. He was focusing on the Vulcans, and you're focusing on episodes where the theme is a little bit more of space is unknown, space is scary, uh, the realities of space flight for humans, for both Starfleet and non-Starfleet personnel. So uh, tell us a little bit about episode three, Fight or Flight, 
and episode 10, Fortunate Son, and why you chose these and why these episodes resonated for you to discuss with our fan base out there for new fans. Right. So I think uh, Fight or Flight uh, is a great episode because we were just having this discussion in the Babel conference not too long ago. A lot of people were questioning uh, the character of, of Hoshi Sato in terms of, you know, how would someone who's in Starfleet be so green? How could someone in Starfleet, you know, just be so, quote unquote, you know, immature, unprofessional and how she uh, reacted to certain situations? And I think they noted uh, in the Memory Alpha article that a lot of people were surprised that the third episode, pretty much the episode right after the pilot, focused so much on Hoshi. But I think that's one of the reasons why I love this episode, because it really sets the tone. Because I think it, it, it really encapsulates Enterprise, but also Star Trek in a lot of ways in terms of, you know, there's that there's an action element, there's the away team element where they go aboard, they discover some uh, a dangerous situation with the bodies, they have a reaction from Hoshi, which is, for me, I don't view it as unprofessional, I view it as so profoundly human. You know, she joined Starfleet as a translator. She didn't join Starfleet to go inspect bodies hanging on hooks. And she wasn't, she didn't join Starfleet to, to go over with a, fa- you know, a phase rifle. And for her to be thrust in that situation, I think she handled it the best way that she could. Because at the end of that episode, she really redeems herself. She saves the ship. You know, it was her communicating without the, the UT, right? The UT wasn't working. So she literally had to write, you know, she was under the gun, literally, right? She had to do this. Otherwise, the ship would have been destroyed. And she was able to, to reach out to the Axanar. Uh, shout out to Norman right there. The, the first time I think we ever see the Axanar. That's um, right. And it, it, it just shows to me that, you know, people can grow. You know, these humans are going to space for the first time. They're, you know, they have no idea what they're doing. You know, the Vulcans say, just leave the ship. You know, it's none of our concern. Archer you know, agrees grudgingly, but then he comes back because he's so angry. And then he realizes that, oh man, we may have just bitten off more than we could chew. What are we going to do? So they rely on Hoshi. And she really just shows that, you know, everyone in Starfleet, they're not necessarily going to be superhuman at their job 100% of the time. They're going to be human in every possible way. That means making mistakes, um, showing emotion, showing fear, but it's how you work through those uh, those feelings, how you work through those obstacles, which, you know, I think really made that episode for me. Hey, Tommy, with Fight or Flight, one of the things that we always talk about in the Babel Conference, and it's Will's right, one of the things that always pops up in conversation is the archetype of what we know of a Starfleet officer versus the reality of what the writers were trying to portray as Archer chose his crew for specific reasons, not necessarily because these were the best and the brightest that Starfleet had to offer, but these were the best and the brightest of his choices at the time. And how did you feel about this episode? And do you think that the writers were on point with taking Hoshi as far as to be so green in in the eyes of the fans? And was that too much of a risk? I don't think it was too much of a risk at all. And I think it's... in making her that green she also functions as a very good surrogate for new viewers because it's it's basically if one of us were suddenly transported up to the enterprise and we were out in space as we are as a new viewer we're kind of tagging along with these people and hoshi kind of plays that role for us and i think it fits her character given what we know from her in the pilot you know that she is very much focused on her work 
and linguistics, and is not so much worried about the other parts of of space travel and meeting aliens. And I think, given where Starfleet is right now, or in turn, I mean, in at that time, it's not surprising because nobody had been out that far before, and the number of aliens that any given human would have met would have been quite a low number. I mean, surely everybody was aware of Vulcans and Nobulans, but to actually be out there and meet all of these new species, some of which, as we see in this episode, are very not friendly, I think is a perfectly normal reaction for anyone, especially somebody who is so young. You know, what I love about this episode is how good Linda Park is as Hoshi in this oh, episode. Yeah. You know, because when you really boil it down, you have a person who isn't a careered Starfleet officer going into the situation where she doesn't have the training like Lieutenant Reed. She doesn't have the experience and the reserve that Archer has in these situations. She doesn't have the xenophobic uh, experience that T'Pol and, and or... Uh, or Dr. Flocks have, she is a linguist teacher from, literally from what, Brazil? She was yeah, plucked I think it was out Brazil. of Brazil? Yeah. And then she's put into the situation, you know, weeks later after they delivered Clang to Kronos. And for the new viewers, it's really neat to see her stumble through this because, I agree with you, Tommy, I think when Star Trek is at its best is when a certain character allows the audience to see the experience through them. And I think that Linda Park does an, an exceptional job here because, A, she has to convey this fear, but she also has to convey the triumph over her own fear. And it's a work in progress, as is season one. It's a work in progress, as is this series. And I think that some of the fans earlier on were like, you know, they just didn't resonate there. But when you really step back and let the passage of time kind of clear that air, you'll realize how good this episode really is because this is what Star Trek is about. It's about overcoming. It's about human nature uh, overcoming its own fear. It's about the development of someone's personality. It's about exploration. It's about mistakes. It's about being human. It's about stumbling and then picking yourself up. And... She really did a fantastic job as an actress conveying all those different emotions and um, really pay attention to that, viewers, when you, when you take a look at this episode because it's not an easy thing to do. Um, and and I, th I thought she just did it with incredible amount of skill and grace. I think that's actually one of the hardest things to do as an actor, to, to do what she did in that episode, especially towards the end of that episode where she, um, you know, she's, she's practically in tears trying to figure this out. Because, I mean, she's not only terrified of the situation, but she realized that the weight of the world, this entire ship, is on her shoulders. And she just did a tremendous job playing that. That's the kind of thing that you can't really direct. The actor has to either have it or they don't. And she did a really good job with that. I don't know, wherever she pulled, whatever experience she pulled from to do that, but it fit perfectly. I think that was one take, too, which is the incredible thing. The entire take on the bridge. Yeah. So it was, yeah, like you guys said, very, very impressive. And uh, 
aside from what, what Hoshi you know conveyed there in that scene, it also was a a really nice way to inform the crew of how good of a of a mentor and a leader that Archer was at the time. He didn't panic. He knew that he chose her for a reason. He had to trust his instincts, and in doing so, she felt that confidence and she felt that if he chose me to be here on this ship for this reason, then there's something that I am definitely going to be able to contribute and this is my time to do it. And you see Archer do that or use that, do that mentorly role, not just with Hoshi, but with Travis as well. And that leads us into, Will, your second choice, episode 10, Fortunate Son, where it's a little bit more of a Travis-centric episode. Now, I find it interesting that you chose these two because these are the two youngest officers on the bridge. And I think that, I've said this before in a previous podcast, they used, the writers used these two particular characters earlier on as a way for audiences to kind of grasp onto the situation of of what's happening in the story. And it allows the audience to have a little bit more of a of a common ground with with uh, with what they're viewing and and through these characters. So tell us a little bit about why you chose Fortunate Son and why do you think it would resonate with some of our new viewers? So I chose Fortunate Son because I just love that episode because it really shows how space really is this frontier. You know, you have Starfleet, obviously, you have the NX-01, but then you really have this entire separate service, the, you know, the ECS, the Earth Cargo Service. You have these freighters that are going 1.8. It takes them five years to go the entire length of, of their trip. Um, they, you know, children are born on the ship. It is this completely, completely separate ecosystem, completely separate. Oh, and what do we what do we call the name of those children born uh, on the boomers. ship? Boomers. They are baby boomers. Thank you very much. There you go. <laughs> and um, it's such in this one episode, it's such an interesting dichotomy just in terms of, you know, space and space flight isn't just the purview of Starfleet. It is the purview of the ECS, which has been there for three generations. They've been out there a long time, a lot longer than Starfleet. So when you have Starfleet coming in, you can just see the resentment from Ryan. You can see the resentment from the fortunate crew. So who are these people coming in with their fancy starships? They're saying what I can't and cannot do on my own ship, right? What I'm supposed to do, what I'm supposed to to do to keep my crew, my family safe. So you have this really interesting juxtaposition. And in a lot of ways, it's in a great introduction to Travis. We're obviously going to see more of him in his episode Horizon when he goes back to his family ship. But you see a lot of Travis in this episode too of what his motivations are, why he left to join Starfleet, but at the same time, why he almost why he has such a close kindred relationship with Ryan and the crew. And there's that beautiful moment within Archer's quarters where he essentially tells Archer, are we doing the right thing? I'm not sure we're doing the right thing. Almost in the most professional way possible, questioning Archer's orders. And Archer kind of ribs him a little bit lightly at the end. But it's more of a teaching moment in terms of saying, we're still figuring out our role here. But there are some baseline bedrock principles that don't change. You know, Archer has that great line, you're human regardless whether you're born on Earth or you're not. You know, whether you're in Starfleet or not Starfleet, there are some rules that we follow. And those rules are we don't capture hostages. We don't torture them. We don't do these things. And although we don't necessarily have the legal jurisdiction yet, there are things that we should be doing. You know, we're still making our own rules as we go. And I think that's something that's very important later on as the seasons go on, obviously with the Zindi and the other crises down the road in terms of 
compromising those values. But you really see themselves in this episode. They're really just going through uncharted territory. Like, how do you deal with other humans out there? They're not Starfleet. They're not going to listen to you. What are you going to do? Tommy, what do you think about this episode? Do you, do you see what Will's seeing in terms of uh, how they're portraying Starfleet as being this entity versus uh, them tro- crossing the line or maybe stepping on the toes of spacefarers that have already been out there for a while? Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, you even see this in our in our own society today. Uh, a, a ridiculous example. I just upgraded from a PT Cruiser to a Prius. And when you drive a Prius, it's like driving a spaceship. And you, uh, you have to pretty much have a lesson in how to put the car in gear. And I was showing this to my dad. And he said, oh, this is ridiculous. You shouldn't have to do this much work to put the car in gear. And I think that's pretty much how uh, you get this. It's kind of sometimes a generational divide, sometimes not, between people who do things a certain way and then the new way comes along. And it's always hard to make that transition. And I think that is showcased very well in in this episode. And it also shows that just like the Vulcans, there are humans with some different ideas on how to do things and how to run things. And it shows that these people that when they're out there by themselves, do they do they follow the rules? Do they stay honorable? Do they... Uh, do they follow the code that Archer thinks they should follow? Um, Vulcans never lie. Is that so? You know, humans never kill or never take hostages, really. And so these are the questions that are asked in that episode, and I think it's dealt with in a very interesting way. As a side note, uh, Tommy, I love the fact that you drive a Prius because I love how the Prius looks like a runabout. The new the new Prius <laughs> looks exactly like a runabout, so I can just imagine... Again, some nice side decals saying like the USS Mekong or the Rio Grande. That's a fantastic Prius. idea. I never even put that together, but now that you say it, yeah, I can totally see it. This is why we have him as content coordinator for the show. This guy right. is just rife of ideas. Now he needs yeah. to get in touch with yeah. Toyota and you know see if he can work out some kind of Star Trek partnership where you uh, you know get the uh, get the runabout Prius. Oh man, oh man! Don't even get me started on how awesome that would be. It's time to get that Photoshop fired up. It's true. And the thing is practically a spaceship anyway, so it works out. You know, Will, when when you and I talked about this show before, one of the things that I liked about Fortunate Son was probably one of the things I like about Deep Space Nine most is that we're dealing with people that don't bow down to Starfleet, per se. Um, The ECS has their own set of rules, their own regulations. Yes, it's, it's governed by the Earth Cargo Service, but when you're out there, on these long generational runs, they take care of their own, they set their own law, they have their own meter of justice, if you will, and they need to make sure that the family is taken care of, and that family is the crew of that ship. And when Starfleet interjects, I really love how Travis has this almost like a crisis of faith because he chose Starfleet over this cargo family because he wanted to do something further with his career. And when he saw what was happening on The Fortunate Son, I think that really kind of drew him back in and said, hey, wait, hold on a second. You know, these people have the right to govern their own system. This isn't Starfleet. This is ECS. And I think that was interesting that Archer 
almost kind of stepped over that. He stepped over a line a little bit where he's like, well, hold on a second. Starfleet governs where we go, where this ship is. Almost kind of like, um, you know, uh, an interstellar United Nations, but before the Federation was obviously created. So I always thought that was um, almost a... prideful of of archer to do that because he was pushing his notion of law and justice on these people that he really doesn't have any governance over uh and it was a nice little uh a nice little crisis of of what was happening between these two sets of laws starfleet law and the law of the cargo service or law of the spacefarers where starfleet wasn't really invited so i thought they handled that well and 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 the reason why i referenced deep space nine is because i always thought that there was this wild west uh lawlessness uh, that was just hanging on a or lawfulness versus lawlessness that was hanging by a thread and everyone was kind of like just with their fingernails tooth and claw trying to keep everything in order where almost all these other forces were just against them and i think that when you saw the Enterprise or the NX-01 in the same space as the Fortunate Son, you saw that the dirt roads were being taken over by the highways, if you will. Right. I really like the fact that you brought up Deep Space Nine, Norm, because in a lot of ways, the tension between the ECS, or at least least the Fortunate crew, and the NX-01 has a lot of echoes of what the Maquis relationship will be down the road in terms of the Maquis have set up their own colonies. They run their own lives, and who's Starfleet? Who's the Federation to say, we're going to trade our homes, our colonies as bargaining chips, right? That type of self-sufficiency, that that homesteader uh, mentality, you kind of see it. You know, back off. Who are you to say that I can't do this? And you will see that uh, echo later on, Deep Space Nine, where you'll have the entire Maquis storyline saying, you don't get to tell me what to do. We're Federation citizens, but we're autonomous of Starfleet. And I think... This is just one of those really extra, those extra threads that they're able to really put into Enterprise, which for a fan of other shows, you really get to appreciate. So Tommy or Will, do you have any, um, I mean, this, I really do like these two episodes and I think that a, a lot of our fans will get a lot of, of content and, and information out of these and really enjoy them because again, they bring in a completely different slice of, of Starfleet, but also they get, they inform um, a lot of of how the choices are being made from just a just a general human condition mentality and and angle and uh, and I love it I love it when Star Trek really kind of focuses on the human angle of it because I think later on in the shows like in Next Generation or in Voyager there's a little bit of perfectionism going on with the way that Starfleet handles um, being out in space and I love the fact that in Enterprise that they focus on a lot of a lot of what we should be doing versus a lot of um, what what people expect, what fans expect of of this as being a Star Trek show. And in certain instances, I think that the it's better to focus on on the mistakes and the humanity because this is the first time that this ship has been out there. This is the first time this crew has been out there. They're not even really gelling together all that well. Uh, they don't really have their systems in place. They don't really have the trappings of of the original series and beyond. Yeah, they just have this torpedoes. Is... I think that's the crazy thing watching all these early episodes is up until Silent Enemy, which we're going to talk about next, they just have torpedoes. And it's crazy that um, that's something I definitely did not pick up until watching these episodes again. I realized, oh, they really did evolve in a progressive uh, step towards phase cannons. And I didn't give them that credit when I initially watched the show 
when it first aired. And not even photons either, just standard old, you know, nuclear torpedoes. Right. So, but thanks for segueing me into uh, into Silent Enemy, <laughs> Will. So, um, for my two choices, what I wanted to focus on and, and what I love looking at when I watch Enterprise is I want to find the details and some of those instances where Enterprise is laying the groundwork to the original series and, and beyond and looking at the overall world building of what Enterprise is doing to the content, the future content of Star Trek, because that's pretty much where I think a lot of the fans were, I think at first, looking for Enterprise to fail. Because they were like, well, how dare you create a prequel to Kirk, Spock, and McCoy? And this is to the writers and to um, Brian and Braga and to all the people that were involved at the beginning. I think that the fan base in and of itself was just not supportive of going backwards this far. Like, how, how can you do that? Because from a production direction standpoint, it's going to look obviously different. You can't take production design from 2000 and 2001 and expect people to accept it and mentally go backwards to 1966 as the bridge. So that was one thing that was really kind of a sticking point, again, with when, when fans got into the show. But I digress. So the two episodes that I picked were back-to-back in season one, and it was episode 12, Silent Enemy, and episode 13, Dear Doctor. Now, Silent Enemy uh, is an episode where an, an alien ship appears out of nowhere. The Enterprise tries to deal with it, and Archer soon realizes that you can't deal with an enemy or you can't deal with a race or a species that just absolutely wants nothing to do with you aside from study you, scan you, objectify you, and in the end try to destroy you. This is the reality of the space of that Archer wasn't accustomed to yet. In previous episodes, we've seen him kind of be optimistic about it, try and open relations, try and open a dialogue, hailing frequencies, what have you, and try and create just peaceful coexistence, even if people didn't really want to to welcome him with open arms. But this particular episode, this race, we never identified. All they did was be completely aggressive and offensive to the crew. And Archer said that he didn't have the ability to deal with them because he left Space Dock and he wasn't ready. And I think this was the first time he admitted that. Um, I'm going to quote to you a scene where I thought, not only was it a great scene for the episode, but I think it was a pivotal scene for season one and a pivotal scene for Archer. Archer and Trip are fixing the warp drive. And he turns to Trip and he says, I never said we didn't belong out here. I just wish we had launched with all of our systems online, especially weapons. Trip responds, if we hadn't launched when we did, they would have sent clang back Sokronos in a box. That's a good impression. Thank you very much. <laughs> And then Archer said, I keep reminding myself of that, but I rushed us out of space dock because I had something to prove. Now, that quote in and of itself is what I found really interesting about this episode and about Archer because it's the first time where Archer, I think, admits that he was wrong and pushed the Enterprise out too quickly without shaking it down and being ready for the perils of deep space. And the first thing he turned to when he realized that he couldn't handle the situation of this this aggressive alien species was, he turned it to Paul and he said, we got to get the weapons online. We have to be able to defend the ship. Now I understand that Starfleet's mission is to go out there as a warship, 
But this is where Archer turns a little bit and says, you know what? I think that I have to think about this a different way. Because in order for us to go out there and explore, we're going to encounter aliens or encounter new species that are going to be hostile. The optimism, the veil of optimism from Archer is starting to drop. And I think he's starting to get more comfortable with, in, in order for me to lead this ship, I need to protect this crew. I need to make sure that this ship survives these encounters so that we can go out there and complete the mission. It's not the captain that he wanted to be, but it's the captain that he's turning into. And in terms of how this kind of relates to the original series, we get the beginning of the phase cannons, which will eventually become phasers which or phaser banks. But also the the almost the distrust that a captain has in himself when he has to make the decisions about the lives of all of his crewmen. I go back to the cage when Captain Pike says, I'm tired of making life and death decisions on a daily basis that affect the lives of the crew. I'm tired of it. I don't want to do it anymore. And this is where Archer, I think, starts to feel that weight, where this ship is in jeopardy. What am I going to do as captain to prevent that? What do you think about that, guys? I think it's a really it's a really good point, and I think it's a big inflection point for Archer. I think you're going to see a lot more of that that's going to be ramped up by the time season three rolls around, obviously how it leads into season four and his talk with uh, Captain Hernandez. I think all of this is the building blocks of you're starting to see this. Obviously the inclusion of the Makos later on, it's it's him not necessarily just haphazardly figuring it out, but it's, it's, a, it's a type of you're going to have to adapt. And I think maybe that's possibly an origin of why some fans think Archer could be bipolar sometimes in terms of his command style where it's sometimes he's very easygoing, he's joking around with Trip, and other times he's, you know, threatening to throw something out the airlock. I think a lot of fans mistaken or or mistook uh, that type of growth as maybe a type of bipolar whiplash type command style. I think you can see that evolution in the show pretty clearly, but I think a lot of people, if they were dropping into the show late in season three, you're just like, whoa, why is this, why do they have a new command center? Why is Archer a lot darker and a lot more grim? Who are these military guys on the ship? If they're just dropping in after dropping out of season one, they're just saying, what happened to the Archer that we saw that we almost thought was a boy scout almost in the season, in the first season, who is now by season three, you know, almost this person on a war path. So I think, the fans don't give enough credit for the growth that you see in Archer, and I think it's really important that they're starting to lay the seeds of that growth so early on in season one. I agree. Uh, it's it's a great uh, throughout the course of the show. It's great character development for Archer, and this episode is is a really good kickoff for that in a lot of ways. It showcases his journey from naivete into somebody who looks at the world in a much more realistic way as um, I going back to the whole parent and child analogy, I would say that Archer starting with this episode kind of grows into this person who it's not that he doesn't love space or exploration anymore, but he views it the way a child who has grown up views their parents. You still love your parents, but you see the faults, you see them more for who they are and you you work through that and it's it's a different kind of relationship 
versus the child who just always thinks their parents are right. And at the start, Archer had something to prove. He he was, the, you know, this, uh, as you said, a Boy Scout in some ways, an explorer. And now as the show is going on, he's kind of wising up to the realities a little bit. Not that he didn't necessarily know about them before, but experience is a whole different thing. And this episode is a great lead-in to the season four episode when he says to uh, Captain Hernandez, he said, we need those weapons and a hell of a lot more. Um, It's not that he likes the weapons, but the reality is you do need them out there on the frontier. Yeah, that's a good reference point because I always loved seeing this episode paired with, with that episode because when he was talking about the weapons with Captain Hernandez, and he said the one thing that I hate when I look at you is I see what I used to be, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's, I think that's um, paramount with all captains, all captains at their, at their first command. I'm sure they have a certain optimism and a certain outlook and like, this is what I want to do and I want to change the world and I want to do it with Starfleet's best interests. But you have to temper that with the experience, being able to manage your ship and your crew uh, and have those moments like in the pale moonlight in deep space nine, where, where Cisco is, you know, he has to make a choice. You know, these are the choices that are in front of you. You can't ignore them. It's, it's not the choice that you would have made uh, in a different path if your career was affected differently. But these are the realities of the situation. And it was really tough on Archer because Archer wanted to, by and large, be this olive branch for the Federation. He wanted to shake hands and say, hi, we're from Earth. Let's create peaceful relations. But this episode proves that not every species is out there for that. It's not a right or wrong thing. It's a matter of fact thing. And I love the fact that um, that they focus on this a little earlier on because it gives Archer the ability to grow and and, and evolve and make harder choices and the, and the audience can believe that these choices are affecting him more deeply now than probably ever before because he is a prideful captain. Uh, the I think the um, the epitaph of this episode should be pride goeth before fall because he risked everything just to prove the Vulcans wrong, and that necessarily isn't the best foot forward for a starship captain, but this is the reality that he's dealt with, and it's good that he recognized that early on. But at the same time, I think he was like, you know what? Even this experience isn't what I was expecting of being a starship captain. But in order for us to grow and evolve as a species, I need to be, I need to take this mission. I need to run with it, and I need to. If I'm not as successful at it, maybe Hernandez will be, you know, or future starship captains, which is why we have captains' logs, I guess. So um, the last episode that we're going to talk about, and probably the one that directly ties in most to the canon and history and overall spirit of what Star Trek was about is an episode called Dear Doctor. And the reason why I love this episode is because this is probably the first time that we even discuss the possibility of creating the Prime Directive. Now, the episode itself is about the Enterprise finds a a non-warp capable species that has been stricken by a plague. Uh, This is a fantastic, for all of you Dr. Phlox fans or John Billingsley fans, this is a fantastic episode because it really is a feature about Dr. Phlox. And Crewman Cutler. Inter- and Crewman Cutler, the, the unsung heroine, I think, of, of season one in a, in a non-command personnel structure. 
But Phlox is presented with this moral dilemma as a physician, as a crewman, and as uh, a denobulan. And it is, what do I do? I am informed with these two choices. You have a warp capable species, you have a non-warp capable species, and they're stricken by this plague. This plague is going to wipe out, obviously, one side of this race and not the other. Do I have the right to involve myself in this? Do I have the right to make that choice? And not to spoil it for anyone who hasn't watched it, because you really should watch this episode, it forces the issue of the Prime Directive and how Starfleet has to make a mandate for all future captains and for all future policies that this is how you weigh a decision of this magnitude. Because we don't have the right, Starfleet does not have the right to interfere with the evolution of a species that has not been spaceborne. That's pretty much the dilemma at hand. And really, it does bridge the huge gap between not having the Prime Directive and the original series where the Prime Directive is something that Kirk always weighs in on almost every other episode. So not to get into too many details about this, but again, Phlox, John Billingsley, he pulls this this moral dilemma, this this torment that he's kind of like going through brilliantly as, as an actor of his ability does. Um, I think that Archer or Scott Bakula also compliments this episode real well because he he feels the moral weight on him and he doesn't demand uh, the kind of, responsibly, he doesn't like force that demand on him, but he pulls back a little bit and says like, you know what, maybe later on there will be a directive, but as for right now, this is the best decision that we have to make at the time in order to help these people. So it, this is a really powerful episode and um, I don't want to spoil it too much, but how do you guys feel about this episode? And do you think that this is the, the kind of strong bridge to the original series that I believe it is? So. I actually think I'm going to take the... I love this episode, too. I think I appreciate what they're trying to do. But I'm going to take the opinion that I actually disagree with what Phlox did. I think they should have given the vaccine the cure to... I think the aliens were called the Valakians. I think I understand what they're trying to do in setting up the dilemma, which I really appreciate. I like the fact that they're starting to be so bold so early on. But for me, the episode didn't work because I think the setup in terms of assuming how evolution would work, that it's just this linear line that you could that you could determine that the Mank were going to evolve into something advanced and that the Lacarians and the Mank couldn't coexist together. I think that was a huge assumption just to say that it had to be one or the other, right? It was going to be this species or the other. It was going to be Homo sapiens or Neanderthals. There can only be one. And I think that's, for me... It was a huge jump, a huge assumption for me that the Mank were going to be this advanced species that deserved to live just based off of Fox's initial observations and that they couldn't, evolution couldn't take a path where the two species could coexist. And I think, you know, I think that speech at the end where Flox says, you know, or not Flox, I think Archer says, we're not, we're not here to play God. You know, in my opinion, I think saying you're not playing God is playing God in a way. I think everything changed the moment they made contact with the species, the moment they made contact. I think trying to kind of put the genie back in the bottle in a way, 
of not saying of not allowing them to have that cure is playing God in a way. And I think that's what informs the prime directive later on where you have the duck blinds, where you have Starfleet pretty much, you know, being completely incognito, that they're observing these pre-warp species without them knowing because the mere fact of them knowing that there's an alien-faring species that can travel orders of magnitude faster than light, that changes evolution right there, right off the bat. So I think, in a way, this episode is a good precursor to what the Federation ultimately does in terms of having really strict protocols in terms of first contact, really strict protocols in terms of non-interference. So I totally get that. I just don't agree with what Phlox did. I'm, all, you know, I'm saying, Phlox, what are you talking about? It's not so... I think the way they were doing it, it was so cut and dried. Flock said, you know, Flock said, this is the way evolution is going to be. You can't interfere with it. And I would say that, you know, evolution, that's not how you would define evolution. And the moment the NX-01 made contact with that species, that species, that planet changed. And trying to put it back in the bottle in and of itself is playing God. But I still like the episode for, you know, its ambition. I would have to disagree in some ways because I don't, from the impression that I got from it was not that Phlox was specifically saying that if we don't help, the Vlachians will die and the mink will become more advanced. I The impression that I got was that he was saying that is a distinct possibility. And by us intervening and allowing the Vlachians to live essentially we are forever altering the destiny of that planet and um i think it's the kind of question that doesn't have a good answer there's not necessarily a a good you're damned if you do damned if you don't essentially and i can understand the the merit scientifically of the idea that if the mink don't have a reason to change from their current way of living and their current habitat, then there's no way for natural selection to essentially act on the genes that would give them more brain power in a very simplified way of putting it. And whereas if the, the, the Vlachians were to kind of die off or at least succeed in huge numbers that would dramatically change the, what the mink have to do to survive because they're very dependent on the Valachians. And now suddenly they're having to create their own society. They're having to create their, their own way of living in every way, their own structures, agriculture, rules, government, uh, laws, scientific understanding, etc. And this kind of building up of your society really favors natural selection, weeding out the smarter people, essentially, um, or weeding out the less smart ones, as the case may be. And so I, I think the whole point is that it could ge- easily go either way. And the impression that I got was that for us to step in and artificially choose one way or the other might not be the right thing to do. And I think the the solution that they came up with was a good middle ground of will give them a way to extend their time, essentially to relieve the symptoms, to, to help them get along with this while they continue to search for a cure, but not outright cure the thing ourselves. Um, and 
it's it's the kind of and it's also just quickly it's it's a really good character development for archer too because it's once again he goes from the very the boy scout of okay we're gonna go in you know we're gonna help these people we're gonna save their lives we're gonna we're gonna make everything right and then we'll call it a day and at the end of the show he's he has these very knee-jerk responses to the things that Flock says, and as a person who really tries hard to reason well and to reason outside of his biases, he considers his own knee-jerk responses and actually changes his mind. And I think that's a sign of somebody who's really a very open-minded person, and it's a great character development for Archer. And it brings it back full circle, too, to what I mentioned earlier about this episode of him saying... He finally started to understand why the Vulcans held them back. Because if the Vulcans had come in after World War III and helped a certain segment of human society, for example, it would have very dramatically changed things. Now, that's a good point. And, and I, what I love about your two different opinions on this episode is probably the success of this episode in general is that you, you give your the viewers and you, and you guys you know that you give them this information and this is how you both dissected the information and what you came away with and what i love about that the two opposing uh issues here is is that's how difficult a decision like this would be you know you have flox's ability to create all of these different theories you have archers i need to do this in order to fulfill Starfleet's mandate of being able to help people that I meet, or at least that's what he believes. And Archer almost forcibly kind of takes charge and says, you know what, this is what is supposed to be done, period, the end, no question. That's not, again, for newer fans, that's kind of like not what you expect from a Starfleet captain. Kirk was very ponderous about certain situations like this. Picard was far more diplomatic about certain situations like this. Uh, but Archer... Again, in in like in other episodes, he he kind of snaps to a decision, and that's not something that's um, traditional of a Starfleet captain's behavior. Then he kind of dials it back a little bit, processes it, and, and tries to get to a, a better angle or a better approach, and and tries to make policy. I guess that's what it really is: is that every single decision that he makes out there, he has no real sounding board for. And every single thing that he logs in in the captain's log becomes analyzed by Starfleet, analyzed by the Falcon High Command, and eventually will become a basis for some type of policy for Starfleet going forward. And I wonder if that actually kind of eats away at the back of his mind. It's like, am I doing the right thing? I mean, am I making the right choice? Because I have to log this in because my other officers are going to be logging it in. When I turn all this into Admiral Forrest, he's going to look through my notes and he's like, why did you do that? You know, what were you thinking? You don't have that right. Starfleet didn't give you that right. And he's like, hey, look, you weren't out there. You know, I had to do the best that I could with the information that I had. And I listened to my officer and I had to make my own judgment. That's why you chose me as captain. But it can't be the easiest thing to live with day in and day out without having the type of counsel that some of the other captains had in other series. You know, Kirk had McCoy. You know, Picard had Riker. Um, Cisco had Dax. You know, and... By and large, I guess Archer has Trip and T'Pol, but they're, they don't have the same experience either. Everyone out there is doing all this for the first time. 
So how is Trip supposed to advise Archer and say, like, you know, Captain, this isn't how you're supposed to handle this kind of a situation? And Paul's like, this is how the Vulcan High Command would have handled this situation. It's not like he can go to his junior officers either because they're just getting by on a day-to-day basis. So he's really in that chair by himself trying to do the best that he can. And I think that's what I love most about these two episodes. I think that's the beauty of Enterprise, too. It's because, you know, by the time of Kirk, and especially once we get to TNG, Voyager, and DS9, they have everything figured out. And I think this was Voyager's biggest shortcoming, is, you know, they're essentially in the position that the NXO one was. and But the, the thing is, they have it all figured out. And so, you know, they come across these anomalies, and it's this and that, and they come across these species, well, we can do this, and we can't do that, yada, 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 they have it all figured out. And Archer doesn't. He's essentially improving everything. And I think that's what's really cool about Enterprise. Is it takes everything we know from these other shows and gives you a pretense to kind of forget about it and start over and see where these guys got their ideas, where Janeway got her ideas and Cisco and so on. Yeah, I think I just want to echo I think what both of you said. I think a lot of ways it's all about the expectations so in a way star trek is often burdened by so much of its of its canon it's burdened by so much of its prior history in a lot of ways it's you know the fans are sometimes the, the greatest asset of star trek but oftentimes they could be the greatest stumbling block too because you have five live action tv shows you have 12 movies you have an animated series you have so much and they're actually all tied in on some of they're all tied in and the challenge is how do you create and carve out new space while still respecting you know the previous iterations i think star wars is kind of going through a similar process they're kind of almost going their own way deciding that they're going to create a new storyline a new timeline that you know doesn't respect the books and kind of going on in a new direction i think star trek also did that but in a different way in terms of the alternate timeline but in every iteration that you have, because there's so much that goes before it, you have so much to draw from. Obviously, there's strength that can be garnered from that, but oftentimes you you have that comparison. And I think, you know, especially coming off of Deep Space Nine and Voyager, having Enterprise, I think, you know, Brandon Braga himself said, you know, I wanted a break before we started this show, before, uh, after Voyager ended, I wanted a break, but we we're starting right, th- right away. And even from the get-go, since we're talking about season one, he wanted season one to be entirely set on Earth. They wanted, you know, the season finale for 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 it to be the, the launch of the Warp 5 engine. And, you know, in my heart of hearts, I would have loved to have seen that iteration of that show because that would have been fantastic. Obviously, I love Enterprise for what it is right now, but, you know, he had to work and the rest of the writers had to work with the constraints of his, their original intent was almost completely upended and they had to adapt it to um, to serve new ends. And I think in a lot of ways, expectations and also the burden of almost having to serve two masters, serving you know their own needs of creating something new, but at the same time, still having those touchstones for the fans. And I think it only started to pay off, sadly, in season four when people started to realize, I understand what's going on. I understand what they're trying to do. And now it's all starting to pay off. And I think in a lot of ways, um, that's probably also the enduring popularity of Enterprise is once they finish, once they burn through all those seasons on Netflix, those four seasons, they're going to be like, 
So is there more or what's going on? Is is, is something else going to happen? And they're just like, nope, that's that's it. That's the end of televised Star Trek as of now. And I think a lot of people are just saying, I don't get it. Uh, the uh, other shows went on for so long. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, enterprises, people are going to, they're understanding that there is much more potential there. And because there are only four seasons, they're able to really get through it very quickly and then understand that there is so much more story to be told um, within that time frame. So I guess that um, that brings us to our final thoughts for, for the show. And, and guys, th- this was a great conversation. And I think that a lot of our fans out there are going to get a lot of, of really good recommendations and, and a really nice primer uh, for all the baby boomers out there to to really take a look at at Enterprise in a new light. So uh, final thoughts on, on what we've discussed? Watch Enterprise. If you've never seen it before, if you've seen Star Trek before, Enterprise is the place to start. It's it's great for new viewers, and there's so many good stories, and the approach that it takes of being the prequel and explaining things really makes it easy for new viewers to get into, and there's such a wide range of stories, and I think we've covered that pretty well here, from action to drama to questions that don't have a good answer, but we have to answer them anyway. And Enterprise did all of that fantastically well. Yeah, I got nothing to add. I mean, I pretty much gave my final thoughts in my previous statement, but uh, yeah, watch <laughs> Enterprise. Uh, there's a there's a Facebook campaign for season five on Netflix, which I think is always neat to kind of join, and it's almost kind of like that fan group in, in exile or in, in abstention. They're kind of keeping it alive in a way so watch the show check out uh the season five netflix campaign check out the babel conference we talk a lot of enterprise a lot actually so uh yeah let us know how you feel there is also this uh this movie to uh, continue the storyline of enterprise called star trek horizon that uh go for it tommy <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, Horizon is, is my own project. I'm a filmmaker and writer, director, executive producer, and pretty much everything else on the project. Um, and I just wanted, I, I didn't think four seasons was enough. So I thought there were some threads left hanging at the end of the show, mainly the Romulan War. And I wanted to, to wrap those up in my own way. And so I am making this feature film called Star Trek Horizon. And we're doing our best to have a big budget feel on a very low budget. And um, we released our first full length trailer in October. And so you all can, uh, if you're interested, can check that out and uh, let me know if I'm achieving that goal of the, the bigger budget feel or at least the TV feel on very low budget. And in the future, we will also be... Uh, We'll be doing one more full-length two- to three-minute trailer before release. And our original goal is to have it done by winter, but it's probably looking like it's going to be more spring-ish now. Um, And for anybody who would like to keep abreast of what's going on with Horizon, we have our official website, which is StarTrekHorizon.com, all one word. And uh, there's our Facebook page, which also gets updated quite often. And that's just facebook.com slash horizon, all one word. And you can find that also just by searching on Facebook for Star Trek Horizon. And uh, if you'd like to stay up to date with me for whatever reason, um, that is the place to do it as well because it's me that updates all that stuff. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the gist. That's, that's me and that's, that's the movie. 
You know, it's uh, actually interesting that you guys have brought up all these different ways to continue the enterprise experience. And um, I'm going to just divert here to Hoshi Station and pull a subspace signal from the Babel Conference that has a little bit to do with what you guys have been talking about, this continuation of enterprise content, because as fans, we love it so much. And uh, one of our listeners and one of the uh, posters on the Babel Conference, Christopher Baca, he asks, how about a little discussion on the enterprise books? on Warp 5. Now, uh, Enterprise uh, in, in the novels, I know, have been touched on in another Trek FM show called Literary Treks. Uh, but I've been told that the Enterprise books are, are a fantastic continuation on the series. Uh, I've been recommended to read The Good That Men Do by Andy Mangels and Michael A. Martin. That was recommended to me a couple of times by one of the hosts of Literary Trek, Matthew Rushing, uh, who is also the host of the 602 Club here on Trek FM. And uh, hopefully he can visit with Dan Gunther and join us in the decon chamber in a future episode to talk about some of the Enterprise era books, because I think that's another way for for fans to get more content there. So thanks, Christopher, for uh, bringing that up in the discussion. And uh, we'll see what we can do about discussing more of the books in later shows. So in, in, in final uh, thoughts, um, I really do love Enterprise. As you can tell, I wouldn't be the host of this show if I, if I didn't love uh, watching Enterprise and talking about Enterprise. That'd be quite the and, thing uh, if you I hated would, the show and you're, you're the host of this show, wouldn't it be, Norm? That would be, I would be a better actor than I think I'm portraying right now. It would, be like, it would right blow now. my <laughs> mind. You're just like, I actually hate Enterprise, and yet I'm going to do an Enterprise show. Yeah, that's the boat I'm into. I hate this freaking show. I hate Star Trek. I'm definitely Star Wars all the way. You know, but I'm making that well, movie. That I, so. <laughs> I lost a bet to Christopher Jones, and now he's got me uh, slaved right. onto this mic. So, you know, but um, no, but I do love the show, and I, and I love bringing this content to you. And and, and I can't thank um, Will and Tommy for being on the show enough because obviously they have great passion for the show, and I want to make sure that you all have a chance to get in contact with them and connect with them. So, uh, Will, um, let all of our listeners know how they can get in contact with you post show. Sure. Um, so you get me at Twitter. Um, my handle is at Will underscore Win, spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. Um, you can also find me in the Babel Conference, which is the, the dedicated Facebook group for Trek FM. We're talking all sorts of Trek there, obviously Enterprise. So I'm posting there a lot, so you can find me there. I'm also the content coordinator for this network, so just in terms of corralling and coming up with new topics to talk about every aspect of Trek, every series, all the movies, comics, everything... Uh, just drop me a line um, at will.win at trekfm, and we can talk about what you what you guys want to hear uh, on future shows. So that's the best way to reach me. Awesome, Will, and thanks so much for being in the decon chamber again. Now, Tommy, um, thanks so much for covering Star Trek Horizon with us. Is there uh, anything else you'd like to tell the viewers to try and see if they can contact you or get in touch with you post-show? Uh, that's pretty much it. Um, we also, just in addition, we have a contact form on our website too, StarTrekHorizon.com, or you can message the Facebook page, or you could just find me on Facebook, Tommy Craft. I believe my username or whatever it is is Tommy G Dog. Uh, G-D-A-W-G, because I'm cool. Um, and You are cool, sir. You are thank cool. Thank you. Thank you very He much. makes his own uniforms and costumes for Horizon. I don't know if everyone knows that. If that's not passion, I don't know what well, it is. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it, was, it was definitely a lot of, a lot of sleepless nights sewing. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's mainly, mainly the, the avenues to, to get in touch. I do have a Twitter, but I always forget to use it, so what's the point? 
Well, awesome, guys. And, th- and again, thank you for, for being in the decon chamber. And it's been, it's been fun talking about Season 1 Enterprise today, but this is the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. But instead of it being a human being prejudiced against Vulcans because the Romulans look like Vulcans, the Vulcans are taking advantage of themselves looking like Romulans in order to be racist against Romulans. Earl Grey. So, it is. so he's got the two armrests, and the right one says little, you know, Ensign, you know, Lamont, and the little arrow, and then the one on the on the left says Lieutenant Commander Data. <laughs> got a little arrow. Yep. The orb. But when they pull away from that window with Jake and Kira, and they pull away from the station, it's like they're closing the book. They're, they're actually closing the back cover of the book, and it's the end of the story. To the journey! How do you feel, Char, about the Borg Queen? Oh boy. I think the longer that I have watched Star Trek, the more I'm in the camp of, I don't know if I like her. The Ready Room. They want you to come across on Archer's side where he can be mad at Trip, but I have a really hard time being Archer being mad at Trip because just think of if we still treated, you know, people of a different race like this. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. That can honestly be the reason they brought Wesley, because Wesley's got nothing else going for him there. I mean, yes, he can lead those kids, but that's just going to be by virtue of his age. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, he's 15 years old. Of course, all the other kids are going to look up to him, at least for a while. And then if he ends up being a total tool, then they won't. Commentary, Trek stars. Yeah, yeah, well, Learning know. Curve was never meant to be a season one finale. They were going to do the 37s, and then UPN wanted to open season two with it, and that totally didn't work either. Man, you got you to gotta say, UPN really ooped it up. Literary Treks. What Jerry Taylor talks about with Catherine Janeway's life is it's kind of a series of her relationships. I mean, she should be doing all sorts of fantastic things, right? And instead, we're learning about her boyfriends. Melodic Treks. But there's a whole host of, of people that appear in Star Trek. As I said, most of it is classic courses for Dave Vivaldi, Strauss, Trojkotsky, um, Harry Kim. The 602 Club. This really does have an impact on, I think, the entire you know, comic book world. Dark Knight, Dark Knight Returns still have a huge impact in the way that people view Batman today. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you can get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly, and it makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels, along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seat on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. 
Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And in order to contact us, you can you can use these different addresses to get in touch with us on Trek FM on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash Trek FM. On Twitter, it's at Trek FM. On Facebook, it's facebook.com slash Trek FM. And on Facebook, we are on the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search engine on Facebook or go to our website at Trek FM and click discussion on the menu bar. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor, who helps us bring Warp 5 and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read, but never thought you'd have time for. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice, along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Warp 5 and the network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an eight-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space, and you can make it happen. Visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and to get your seat on the mission. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference, our dedicated Facebook listeners page, or on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. I'm also a huge supporter of Alec Peters and the Axonar Project, and you can find me on the dedicated Axonar fan group page on Facebook. Lastly, I'm a proud supporter of Trek FM through Patreon, and I am an associate producer of four shows here on Trek FM. That's Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Axonar, the official Axonar podcast. So thanks everyone for listening and join us again next time here in the decon chamber for another episode of Warp 5. Mm-hmm.